Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Stacy Derasmo, author of the novel The Complicities. I think in many ways I chose a situation of financial crime because it is a little bit colder in temperature than some other kinds of crimes, right? And thus easier in a way for people to rationalize things to themselves. It can seem it can seem in a weird sort of way victimless. We'll be back with Stacy Derasmo after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest. There is so much free content out there, and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch 
again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash first draft writers to donate today. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Stacey Durasmo, author of five novels and one book of nonfiction. Her fiction books include Tea, A Seahorse Year, The Sky Below, Wonderland, and The Complicities. Several of her novels have been selected as best books of the year by publications such as the New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Newsday, NPR, and the LA Times. Her nonfiction book, The Art of Intimacy, The Space Between, is a craft book that explores how writers capture intimacy, relationships, and human connection on the page. Her new novel, The Complicities, explores ideas of culpability and who pays the price for crimes that are committed, whether we commit them directly or indirectly. The story focuses on Suzanne, who moves to a small, middle-class beach town in Massachusetts after her husband, Alan, is convicted of financial fraud. Suzanne is faced with the task of rebuilding her life while also facing and avoiding, at the same time, the role she played in her ex-husband's accumulation of illegal wealth. As she struggles to start anew, her past haunts her. She avoids her ex-husband's phone calls from prison, attempts with little success to communicate with their adult son, and forges odd friendships with her former estranged mother-in-law and her ex-husband's new wife. While this is going on, she is awestruck by a beached whale and becomes obsessed with not only its fate, but the fate of the species. We're going to start with reading a section that to me struck me as like maybe a kernel of the book or like the acorn where all the other leaves and roots spring from. (laughs) And it's early on and your main character is named Suzanne. So this is in her voice. And she says, I mean, look, sure, you can call me complicit, but there's complicit and complicit, isn't there? It's only one thing, one label that explains everything in every situation. There isn't complicity, but complicities, errors of different sizes. Plus, there are other factors, choices that in hindsight maybe weren't right, but in the moment, it seemed different. Other people have done a lot worse things, Pol Pot, drug cartels, sex traffickers, and we weren't like those Wall Street buffoons you've seen, the nouveau riche, ones you can see coming miles away by the supernatural glow of their teeth veneers. I graduated summa cum laude from Smith. Alan was a complicated guy, and he truly was so smart, incredibly smart. We sent Noah to Montessori school. We listened to NPR. Our friends were really interesting people, local artists and a chef and gay guys who went to Burning Man every summer. We composted before hardly anyone else was doing it. No one ever really believes that you didn't know. But there's knowing and there's knowing. I knew that a good life costs money and that's what I knew. And I knew how smart Alan was and how hard he worked. Let's put it that way. (laughs) You read that great. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you about that paragraph. To me, it felt like it held, like it was almost like the concentrate that you 
unraveled during the book. So tell me a little yeah. bit about that paragraph and, and the idea for this book. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's interesting about that paragraph because sometimes I've wondered if it's too loud um, in terms of the themes of the book, you know, to be honest. But because Suzanne is a character who exists in many ways on the edge of what she knows full well and what she doesn't really want to know that she knows in that paragraph, she's really kind of letting us into her circuitous route around everything that she knows and doesn't want to know. And she is a self-aware character in addition to being a self-justifying character. Mm -hmm. And as you were reading it, I was thinking about how in a funny sort of way, she's both being incredibly disingenuous in what she's saying. And she's also a little bit right in the sense that there, there is a scale of terrible things and terrible things in which one is complicit or implicated. And in many ways, the book kind of ranges up and down that scale of actions and of um, collusions and up and down the scale of the consequences of those collusions, right? Sometimes some of the things that Suzanne and other characters do are very, are somewhat minor in the moment, but they lead to consequences that are not minor at all, right? And I think that many times when people are committing crimes, actual crimes, one thing you hear people say a lot, I mean, actual people in the world, is something along the lines of, I didn't mean to hurt anyone. I didn't think this would really be harmful. Everyone does this. There's a real, a deep reluctance to admit to harm, which is very interesting. It's as if people wanted to do whatever it was and at the same time to believe that they weren't causing damage when it's very obvious that they that they were, right? Um, and so in that graph, she's really, she is kind of grappling with her conscience, but then finding a million ways to let herself off the hook. Um, and that is very much where the book lives, for sure. And what made you interested in this concept? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because obviously I worked on the book. Um, I probably worked on the book for, you know, five or six years. So, you know, um, when I started working on the book, um, all of the things in which we have found ourselves um, in the last like six years hadn't happened yet, right? I mean, Trump hadn't been elected or even thought of as someone who might be president. A lot of things had not happened. Um, but I was very, very interested in this ambivalent attitude toward, toward fraud and toward crime long before we had a lot of these other things that have happened in the last little while, 
you know, everything with Me Too and all this business, you know, there was Enron, there was the subprime mortgage um, disaster. And I would look at these people who are so different. I mean, I don't, I don't work in money. I don't know a lot about money, but I was fascinated. I just would think, what do you people say to yourselves? You know, what do you, what's going on in there? And I, I found that very, very interesting. And I think in many ways, I chose a financial, a situation of financial crime, because it is a little bit colder in temperature than some other kinds of crimes, right? And thus easier in a way for people to rationalize things to themselves. It can seem, it can seem in a weird sort of way, victimless, like you didn't kill anyone, you didn't knife anyone, you didn't, you know, traffic anyone, right? It's, it can seem so technical in a way, and yet it has very hot consequences. And I was also very fascinated by, and continue to be very fascinated by, the way in which, and this has only gotten greater over the, my sense of this has only increased over the last few years, in many of the sort of big scandal crime stories of our moment, really the story is everybody knew, everybody knew. I mean, you think of these big, like these big, terrible things, you know, like Weinstein and Madoff and Jeffrey Epstein, you know, these terrible, terrible things. And everybody knew. I mean, I didn't know, right? I mean, you know, I don't think I'd ever even heard of Jeffrey Epstein before the story began to break. But in their world, and in a very kind of widespread way, lots of people knew. And lots of people, you know, lawyers and managers and agents and airplane pilots, you know, flying people to Epstein's private island, everyone knew. And I find that incredibly fascinating because what are people doing with what they know? And of course, they're benefiting, right? And I was very, very interested and remain very, very interested, not in the kind of really horrendous, irretrievable person at the center, but at the people just next to them who are implicated. And how do they explain themselves to themselves? Um, because often, to my eye anyway, they aren't psychopaths, they aren't sociopaths, they aren't evil. And yet they're deeply involved in very cruel situations. So I find that as a writer, I find that just incredibly, incredibly interesting. And so I really, really wanted to explore that with a character and with a kind of a, a sort of a group of people. So, you know, but along the way I had to, I mean, I'm not a money person. So I had to talk to some people and get some facts. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff I had to kind of find out, well, to make it real, to make it plausible. Um, it's not, it's not my world. Yeah. And hence the title, The Complicities and what I just read. It's not just one thing. It's like all these little things when you're in the periphery that maybe you can justify. And so Suzanne is, she is the ex-wife of Alan. 
She left right. him after he gets, um, after the truth is out and he's getting indicted right. and goes to jail. And she's kind of living, you know, we're deeply interior in her head as she tries to make her new life and doesn't really have money. And she becomes a massage therapist and she's living on the Cape. And I'm curious about, you know, your selection of, of a, a spouse and what you wanted her character to be. I mean, we, I understand the the complicit part that she's really talking about, but you could have chose a pilot or anyone. So I'm curious about your interest in Suzanne. Yeah, because a spouse, I mean, one thing in the, in the book is that she does actually love him. We often like to, I think sometimes it's easier to imagine that people make these decisions for, uh, out of a kind of a scheming, you know, climbing to the top or, you know, greed or something like that. Um, but she does actually love him. She did actually fall in love with him and marry him and have a kid with him. And, um, and I chose a spouse, you know, for exactly that reason, because between partners like that, um, and long-term partners like that, it's usually pretty tangled and complicated. It's not just one thing, um, not at all. And so that she was that she was so close to him, to me, was really raised the stakes for one thing, because you know, it certainly ha- it certainly happens and has happened that spouses can hide huge things from each other. I mean, you know, you see these stories all the time where someone actually has another family that no one in the other family even knew about. That that happens and people hide crimes, they do. But it's it's hard to do with someone that you're with every day, you know, you're paying bills together, you're, you know, doing all this stuff together. It's hard to keep things that under wraps. And there is the fact of the deep emotional ties of people who are spending their lives together and have a kid together. And um, it's an intimate relationship. So to me, it has a lot more tension and a lot cuts a lot deeper than someone whose relationship to the sort of main bad actor is more clear cut, right? It's where it gets dicey that is really interesting to try to write about. So I'm wondering, you know, as I as I mentioned, this is very deep internal first person. We're, we're deeply inside Suzanne's head. And I mean, it's interesting because she's almost like knows things as, that a first person narrator doesn't necessarily know. And we get the sense that people told her after, but there's also some other aspects where you're not sure how she knows that information, which is really interesting. It's almost kind of meta because you're also wondering throughout, like, did she know what was going on with her husband? And how much of a storyteller is she? How much does she make up her reality? And it was such a... Yeah, that meta aspect of it was so nuanced and 
was that, were you thinking about that, that, that the way that she narrates could also be the way she understood the crime? Absolutely. No, absolutely. That's very insightful. Yeah. You know, as Didion said, and has been quoted endlessly, right? We tell ourselves stories in order to live. And she is telling the story. And, you know, there's a point in the book where there is a kind of a brief time of connectedness to her husband's second wife and her husband's estranged mother. And there is, it's essentially off the page, but there is a time when the three of them are connected and telling each other stories of their lives, which is how she knows a lot of the things about them that she narrates. But she is also trying and trying to weave a tale in which essentially she is the heroine who did the right thing and it's not fair what happened to her. You know, in that way, I really feel for her because don't we all do that? (laughs) You know, don't we all try to tell the story that way? And I definitely wanted that sense of um, a kind of a growing unease on the part of the reader of like, how reliable is this person and where is she going with this, right? Um, And the sense that while she is trying not to reveal too many layers of herself, she is in fact revealing them all the way along. So I did, I wanted that, that shakiness and that blur and that, um, that feeling of sometimes not quite knowing how much we can trust her. When she was confronted in conversations, she was like, I didn't know, how could I know? But the rest of the time she wasn't like obsessed with what had happened or questioning her moral choices in it, really. She has a flaw that I think is actually one of the worst flaws a person can have, which is that she fully believes in her own goodness and that she could not possibly have done a bad thing. Neither she nor her ex-husband are at the level of like a Harvey Weinstein, right? But one of the things I found fascinating about Harvey Weinstein as that unfolded is that somewhere he kept saying, I'm not that guy. And of course, he was exactly that guy. He was the worst of that guy. He's like a monstrous example of that guy. And yet to himself, he could not say, I am that guy, which I find utterly, I mean, horrifying and also utterly fascinating that, you know, in his case, what he was doing was obviously incredibly violent and, you know, truly horrendous, right? Horrendously destructive, vicious things, but he's not that guy. And I think that with Suzanne, that's the blind spot that's like as big as a barn. Like, well, I couldn't possibly be capable of a of a crime, essentially. And I think that to not know as a human being that you might be capable of a crime, of the unethical, of a bad action is very dangerous because 
historically the evidence is in that <laughs> that most of us are. I mean, we are. Human beings as a species are capable of really horrible things. That is in a way how she gets into so much trouble and how things unravel so much is that is that she cannot allow for the possibility that she did something that was not right that hurt other people. You mentioned that Suzanne knows a lot of things that are from discussions that happened off the page. And you get that as a reader, that she has this connection with um, her ex-husband's new wife and mother and got a lot of information from them. And she's bringing it back to the reader without showing those conversations. And I'm curious, like craft wise, if you had written out those conversations and why you think it's maybe more powerful to have them not be on the page. I did write a bunch of those scenes and then got rid of them. Craft-wise, the reason for keeping them off the page is that without giving too much away, um, that budding relationship among these three women who were connected to the criminal, that relationship among the three of them blows up at a certain point. And the reason that I kept all that stuff off the page is that Suzanne is telling this story after those relationships have actually blown up. And it is so painful to her. It is so incredibly deeply painful to her that she can't recount them. It is a loss of such magnitude to her that she can't relive them. And also because I wanted sometimes to keep things off the page there's a sort of a weird math that they have a much greater reverb when the reader realizes that this entire thing has happened, this loss has happened, and the main character is kind of like after the blast, right? Um, and so that's why I that's why I kept them off the page. And also, you know, it's funny because there's a kind of a photographic negative of this book. Like there's a different book that this could be, which is not the book I wanted to write, which is three women who are connected to a financial criminal. None of them know how bad he is. They realize what his crimes are. They reject him, get together in solidarity and form a an echo conscious company that helps save the planet or something and that's not the book i wanted to write i wanted to write a book about damage and i wanted to write a book about loss and i understand why people love a book like that i do but it's a little too easy and it's a little too easy for this moment in history honestly. Um, So those scenes where they're kind of sharing their experiences and connecting with each other, I think it's better if the reader realizes that along the way, Suzanne has lost something so precious to her, as it turned out, that she can barely speak of it. 
Did you only realize that through the process or did you know? So you didn't know from the very beginning that you were going to be writing from after all of this happened. No, I really didn't. I mean, it took, you know, as many books as books do, it went through lots of revisions and lots of drafts and lot. There was a whole, there, there are a whole other characters that had sections that, you know, went away. There are for a while, there was, there was stuff from Alan's point of view that went away. Um, I, you know, I tried a lot, a lot, a lot of different angles. um, And before I came to where, before I came to where this is, to where this is now. So when you're writing and writing and writing, how did you know <laughs> that that was finally the right one? Because it was the one that made me feel the most ill. <laughs> you know, you've got it when there's a little bit of a pit in your stomach and you're like, ouch, ouch, that's it. That's it. It's when it hurts. That's when I knew it was you know, this is right. This is what, this is what the story is. And this is where this needs to go. Yeah. It's so interesting. I'm, I'm really interested in our somatic intelligence and what our body knows. I think it's a really great thing that we don't talk about very much when we talk about writing or teach writing like that, your body's intelligence, like to get out of your head can help you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, long ago when I wrote my first book and I finally really got to the end, you know, wrote sort of the last line. I, I actually thought I was going to throw up. I literally thought I was going to throw up and it was like, it's a book now. I mean, you know, we put our hearts and our souls and our beings into this and our beings include our bodies, our our corporeal existence, right? I mean, I think that anyone who writes seriously, when you're really, really in it, um, in the, you know, in the making of it, it's a kind of a trance state. And it's your whole being, your body does know, right? Even even a simple thing, like you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night, gnawing on a problem in the book, right? You've woken yourself up thinking, what do I do about, no, that is, or you get an idea, right? And you, you wake up and you have to write it down. I think that's very true. And I think that what you say is right. And also points to the fact that those somatic experiences, those, that somatic knowledge is not always pleasant, right? It's not always like, wahoo, great sentence, girl, right? It's not, it's, it can be like, oh my God, I'm getting to the center of the labyrinth. I'm freaking out. So the, the novel has a whole other thread, which is that it, it takes place on the Cape and a rare right whale is beached and Suzanne becomes really interested and involved in this beached whale that has a lot of, I think, symbolic meaning, but also very real meaning about the earth and where she's living. And she gets involved, brings it, works with volunteers to bring it back to sea. And it, it comes back onto the shore. And I'm curious both about why this topic was of interest to you, but also why you think that novels need 
sort of a braiding of something that seems sort of unrelated to have more texture, maybe? I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. Why the whale? Um, So there are sort of two answers to that question. One is that pretty early on in making this book, I had this really strong image of this woman and this wounded whale and her contemplating that. I think a lot of times with novels, there's some kind of core image that comes to you and you don't really know why. It's just kind of like there, right? Um, And so in one sense, it's an image of scale. She's looking at something of such a scale that she can hardly grasp it. I mean, a right whale is a big, is a very big animal and we don't see them on land. (laughs) And most of us don't get to swim around in the ocean with right whales. So it's a kind of an intrusion into ordinary life, something that big, right? So a lot of people have asked me, what is, what is the whale symbolic of? And it's not symbolic of just one thing, but, but one thing that it certainly is, is like, here is something, here is a catastrophe of a scale that a character doesn't know how to deal with. It's too big, which is sort of her whole life with this, the aftermath of this crime. It's, it's too big. As for the alchemy of what you're talking about, I know exactly what you mean in terms of craft. That is a really good question and a really good insight because it's very true. And I don't have an exact answer for it. On one level, you can think about it as narrative tension, right? Like, why is this whale in this book, right? When people are reading it, like, why is this whale in this book? Who cares? For one thing, it does give us the feeling of life, right? Um, Life doesn't proceed in this sort of lockstep of like, well, this should logically be here and this should logically be here and this should logically be here because lots of things, what feels like life is when the thing that you have no idea why it's there crosses our path. Like yesterday, my partner and I were standing in a line uh, waiting to get free tickets to Shakespeare in the park, which is a thing, you know, here in New York. And as we're standing in this line with a bunch of people, suddenly this man comes walking down the street in a tiger suit. It was like the middle of the day and he's just walking down the street in a tiger suit. He walks down the street, he disappears from view. Then he comes back around a little while later carrying like a little bag of groceries. And it's like, why is there a man in a tiger suit walking down the street? I don't know. I have no explanation for this. Did he not want to take off the tiger suit before going to get his groceries? Has he been up all night in the tiger suit and is going to get his breakfast? What is his deal? Right? Um, It was a kind of a slightly ratty tiger suit, which makes you, does he live in it? That feels like life. Also, obviously, these things that at first seem not to do directly with the action of the book begin to kind of ping on the subtext. Hopefully they accumulate thematic weight and the subtext gets deeper. I also think there may be something simply in writing, especially in writing a novel, which is such a long, it's a long form and it takes a long time to write them, that 
it's almost as if to keep yourself moving through the book, you need to kind of pull something in that you don't understand. I didn't have a a super like bullet pointed list of why the whale was in the book. I just knew that the whale needed to be in the book. And also it happens. I mean, the Cape does have a lot of, you know, the Cape is a place where whale strandings happen. This kind of thing can happen in a town like that. It would be a big deal. It would involve a lot of people. So it's very plausible on that level. And it's an interesting, it's a really interesting question. After writing this, did you feel like you understood complicity anymore? Well, you know, it's interesting because now that I'm talking to people about the book, now that it's beginning to make its way out into the world and I'm having these conversations and thinking about complicity a lot because people ask me about it, actually, the more I think about it, the more complicated and sticky it gets. Um, so that we all like to think, well, I would not be complicit in X, Y, or Z. And if I were, I would stop it right away. Right. But I've been fascinated by the January 6th hearings, which to me are like, you know, complicity, the after party, uh, you know, we're seeing all these people testify who were completely complicit. William Barr was very, very complicit. And yet now they are doing the right thing, which doesn't excuse them. And maybe it's just to save their skin, right? And on a kind of a human dramatic level, we're watching people tell the story of when a situation that they created got completely out of control. And some of the people with less direct power in that scene, like um, the young women, Christy Hutchinson, right? The one who was, right, who was kind of, she didn't have a lot of power in the scene and she was a very powerful witness, right? It's not so clear cut the ways that all of this works out and what people do. The more I think about it, the more complex it becomes. So in a funny kind of way, I understand it. I see how deep it goes and how widespread it is. Do you feel that, you know, writing this and being absorbed and thinking about all these things from (laughs) Trump to all of this, do you still feel that, or do you feel, I don't know if it's still that, despite all this, more people are good, more people are moral, more people have guilt when they throw away the peanut butter jar. Yeah, I mean, you know, my basic view of humanity, honestly, and this may be very Pollyanna-ish, I mean, I kind of feel like most people pretty much, they want to work a job that they don't despise. They want to make enough money to have a good, a good enough life. They want to love their people. They want to have some fun. I don't think that most people are profoundly venal or cruel, but I think that systems and situations can be very venal and cruel. And what it takes sometimes to resist that or defy that can be a very tall order. 
That's what I think. It takes a lot. And people don't always like you for it at all. If you read Tarana Burke's memoir, Unbound, she's the person who you know came up with Me Too. One of the defining moments for her, which is so incredibly painful, is when she was, um, the, the thing that really, really, really ignited her in terms of Me Too is that she was working in um, Alabama with a bunch of people doing like, you know, all of this amazing progressive work. And there was a, a Black pastor who was a kind of a sexual predator of children. Everyone knew it. And he had, you know, marched with Dr. King and he was a huge force in that community. And no one wanted to speak against him. And for her, it was a turning point and also a kind of a psychological catastrophe. The stakes of naming him and not participating in that collusion that was happening in that community were very, very high. It was extremely painful. Um, you know, she basically had a kind of breakdown. And then, you know, she launched a movement that changed the world, right? But it came from a place of realizing that in a community that was profoundly important to her, of which she was a deep part, that there was someone there who was incredibly damaging and speaking out against him or naming him was going to cost her very, very dearly. And it did. So this is the thing. You pay. You pay a lot. Like my main character, many, many people don't want to or can't pay that price. It's interesting because she was a massage therapist. And one of the things she says very early on, she also worked at a bar. And I think this was actually in a bar, in the bar where people were talking. She has a quote that says, I was learning what a powerful thing it is to be heard. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because... It's about being seen and being honest and being vulnerable, which she wasn't. Right, exactly. It's not easy. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as yeah. a writer? Yeah. So I chose um, Two Serious Ladies by Jane Bowles. This is the, I'm sure this is the copy that I bought. It's all dog-eared and yellowed. And I'm going to read actually the the second paragraph on the first page. Um, As a child, Christina had been very much disliked by other children. She had never suffered particularly because of this, having led, even at a very early age, an active inner life that curtailed her observation of whatever went on around her to such a degree that she never picked up the mannerisms then in vogue and at the age of 10 was called old fashioned by other little girls. Even then, she wore the look of certain fanatics who think of themselves as leaders without once having gained the respect of a single human being. Jane Bowles was someone who I love absolutely dearly. And I love this paragraph because it is, on the one hand, very sympathetic to Christina, and on the other hand, extremely clear on. Christina's less likable side. And that sentence, even then she wore the look of certain fanatics who think of themselves as leaders without once having gained the respect of a single human being is just hilarious. 
I can think of that line to make myself laugh all by myself in a room. Um, I just, I think Jane Bowles was a genius and I, I love that. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah. So I'm going to read actually the very opening graph of the book. After everything, Lydia framed one of her heart pictures and gave it to me. It's a heart shape made by a fallen plastic bread bag on the street. You can see the W-O-N along one fold. It looks like it's been run over a few times. The letters are worn. Sylvia gave me the bedspread she had knitted for Alan. The greens in it are subtle and varied, like the greens in a field, and it's soft. Gifts are so complicated, aren't they? Cultures use them as peace offerings, instructions, reproaches, bonds, displays of power. The Roma only give flowers in odd numbers. Even numbered bunches of flowers are for funerals. What's that about? I hung up Lydia's picture. I put Sylvia's bedspread on my bed under the skylight. So I see them every day. So this paragraph is really meaningful to me because it actually moved around in the book a lot. Um, it, it, it came into the book later, it moved around a lot. And then this is something that to me is about the necessity and genius of editing because it was my editor, the amazing Kathy Porries, who at a certain point said, I think that paragraph should be at the very beginning of the book on a page of its own. And when she said that, like really like the penny drop, that was so right. And it, it really um, brought to the forefront what I was talking to you about before, which is that it is the loss of this potential connection that really is Suzanne's entire reason for relating this story. And she's saying to these people who are lost, I am still holding what you gave me. I don't understand why we came apart. And the fact that she doesn't understand why they came apart is really the, in many ways, the tragedy of the book. So, you know, um, and it was almost like a kind of nothing graph for a little while, like a kind of a, not a throwaway, but it was sort of like, oh yeah, that. And then it was Kathy who was like, no, put this at the beginning. And she was, she was right. She was totally right. Where do you write? I write in my study, um, which is not the room I'm in now. Um, it's down at the end of the apartment and, um, I love being in there and (laughs) that's where I write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Anything that's out of my head. So to the park, into nature, to the dance floor, to the exercise class, like out of my head, out of my head, out of my head. That's where I go. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My partner, poor thing. (laughs) I am really a person who's like, love me, love my work. And in my life, I've had partners who did various things. Sometimes they were writers, sometimes not. And, uh, but that is definitely the first person that I show it to. How have you dealt with rejection? (laughs) You know, mixed. I mean, 
I'm about as good or as bad at it as anybody else. Who likes rejection? Rejection sucks. I mean, distraction really helps, honestly, you know, being reminded that whatever this rejection is, it is not the end of the world. The world is a much bigger place and you'll live. So distraction, it's never fun, but it is 100% part of this path. You know, I know a lot of writers, very successful, less successful. I do not know a single one who has not dealt with a significant amount of rejection. So if you want this life, that's the deal. And what is your favorite word? Well, it's hard to choose one, but among my favorites definitely is um, limerence. What does that mean? Limerence is the, is the very early state of being in love, is that kind of like global, I'm in love and the world is in love and everything is love. And, um, you know, it's that early intensity um, of love. It doesn't, you know, we don't, we don't live in limerence, but it's great. And it's a beautiful word because it's just like, listen, like limerence, limerence. Um, it's a gorgeous word and it hasn't been ruined. No one has used it in advertising or, you know, I don't even think there's any like albums named limer, you know, like music album, like no one has ruined it because it's such a weird word. So I like it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Yeah, thank you. This was great. This was totally great. If you like today's show with Stacey Durasmo, author of The Complicities, check out my interview with Joan Silber, author of the novel Improvement. We talked about what makes a community, the limits of love, and the meaning of redemption. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 370 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Tracy K. Smith, Elizabeth McCracken, and Peter Orner. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.